0: Mean old Lion Media presents Corner Table Talk. Welcome to Corner Table Talk. I'm your host, Brad Johnson. Here we explore subjects related to food plus drink plus culture. As always, your questions and comments are welcome. You can reach me at brad at postandbeamhospitality.com. How does someone become a visionary? The word in this context is defined as a person with strong vision of the future. That doesn't mean they are always right but often are. Someone who possesses the ability to take chances on their ideas and is proven right will be sought after to provide that service. This type of person looks at the world and has a unique ability to identify patterns and trends. It is also said that a person can acquire these skills. This ability can be learned. Whether innate or learned, my guest today is a highly sought after business executive with a track record that demonstrates the kind of vision I'm referring to. Over a career that spans three decades, Ken Lombard has amassed extensive experience in business development, management, investment banking, economic development, corporate expansion, and real estate investment. He is widely recognized for having led numerous successful real estate investments and business ventures that fostered economic improvement and urban renewal in underserved minority communities throughout the United States. Ken is a father and married to well-known Los Angeles-based broadcast journalist, Pat Harvey. Welcome, Ken. And thank you for being here. Good to
1: see you, Brad. Thanks for the invitation.
0: Always good. Honored to have you, man. So, can I kick things off with uh, what I call short order questions. Just a few things to loosen you up and get you ready for the heavy stuff. <laughs> All, right. All right. No heavy stuff, but uh, we'll roll into our short order. So, Ken, tell me, what is in heavy rotation on your playlist? What are you listening to these days?
1: You know, I'm always old school. So, you know, lately I've been uh, listening to some Sam Cooke and some Curtis Mayfield Um uh, you know, in particular, the ones that uh, Change Gonna Come and, uh, you know, if you had a choice of colors, uh, those are my two favorite ones that I'm listening to right now. My son yeah. makes sure that I uh, I typically uh, have uh, somewhat on my rotation, some of his old hip-hop folks and, and rap songs. So it, it, it's people, I, I heard the other day someone said didn't look like, I don't look like someone that would listen to that. But. Actually started because my son was doing it, and I figured I needed to figure out what was going on with him, what he was listening to, and then all of a sudden I started liking it more than he did. So,
0: <laughs> I guess there is a place for all kinds of music, right, in our in our rotation. Yeah. Yep. So, Ken, tell me what what's your morning routine, man? You
1: know, I'm up pretty
0: early. I um, obviously like to have
1: a little bit of mind space to. Have my coffee and think about the day, and because most of the time my um, the the interactions I have have been with the East Coast, you know, I usually get started could be as early as seven. Um, try to squeeze a workout in uh, somewhere in there, uh, never enough, but uh, try to get that going. But then the day just kind of you know, I try to stay organized about it, so it's uh, obviously a lot of meetings and calls.
0: I, I know you were boxing for a little while there, but what are you doing for your workout?
1: Yeah, I'm still doing that. Um, that's uh, my, my buddy, Pat King, who's Gracie jiu-jitsu guy. Uh, he and I kind of – the, the rule is, is you can't hit me, but you know, you, <laughs> we work out with the mitts and the heavy bag and try to get a sweat going. So. But it's it's a pretty good workout for me.
0: Best live musical performance that you've ever seen? What comes to mind?
1: You know, I I actually, Charlie Wilson always, you know, we had, during during the magic days, we had a concert with him. And I I recall that, you know, if I could throw another one in there, you know, back when I grew up in Seattle, the only artist that would ever come to town seemed to be James Brown. James Brown, it felt like he was coming six times a year. But uh, but I did see I, I did see Jeff Brown and I always remember those concerts.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He, he was, as we know, the hardest working man in show business. But seeing him live is an unforgettable experience. No question. Yeah, yeah. So can complete this sentence for me. I have little patience for carelessness. I mean,
1: it's it really is. Uh, I feel like everyone has an opportunity to um, put in the hard work. Carelessness really is as a result of just um, an unwillingness to to really put in that work, and so that to me is probably um, the biggest thing that, that I lose my patience on. Yes, sir.
0: All right. Favorite vacation destination? Either somewhere that you've been, Ken, or someone that somewhere that you're possibly looking forward to visiting.
1: You know, Greece was a nice trip. Uh, I enjoyed that trip uh, immensely. And, you know, usually a, a Cabo, um, some form of Mexico, trip to Mexico and Hawaii are, are, are the favorite places to go. Okay. I mean, nowadays, though, you can't. I mean, it's with, with COVID and everything else. It's been so restrictive. It's it's um, Travel's been kind
0: of non-existent
1: for a while. So hopefully
0: yeah. we get back to that. Yeah. Looking forward to that, too. So, Ken, I know you're often on the advice giving side, but... What is the best advice that you've been given?
1: You know, I I think early on in some of the conversations I had, and I've been I've been pretty uh, fortunate to be around some very, very smart, talented um, executives way beyond me. And, you know, I think the an approach that an advice that included never really accept the status quo um, and be willing to really push. Push the envelope um, to see what the possibilities are is probably the best uh, advice that I've ever been given. Um, I grew up around a hardworking uh, family, so um, that piece of advice was more in, in, ingrained in me as a kid uh, early on working in the dry cleaners but uh, and, the, and the various ventures that my family had. But uh, those are probably the two uh, piece, best pieces of advice I've been given.
0: Okay. yeah. And we're going to get into uh, I want to talk a little bit about Seattle, the Lombards and your family history, which is which is really interesting. So um, last one of these, who, past or present, would you most like to host at an intimate dinner party? You know, not because uh, she's part
1: of your team, but love to have that conversation with Malcolm X. That's that's the past Mm -hmm. The present. You know I think a, a, another visit with with Obama and you my, my, my short list used to be Warren Buffett and I did have a, a dinner with him uh, but uh, I and I have met um, President Obama would love to see him and catch up with him again
0: at, at a at a dinner with someone like Warren Buffett Ken is there just one pearl of wisdom after another or do you talk about the Lakers or the Knicks too is there just Common man conversation that happens, or is it you know one gem you after know, another?
1: It was it was an interesting conversation, and I think the thing you walk away with is is how the humble approach that he has. I mean, at the time he he drove, dinner was at his country club in Omaha, and he drove up in his old Cadillac, drove himself, and sat and just had a normal conversation. Um, you know, as you, you see, you notice, probably notice him, everyone from, he is a sports fan. So it did kind of segue to that um, with some of it, in particular, Terrence Crawford, who's a fighter out of Omaha, who he supports. But you've seen him with others. And, you know, just talked a little bit about it, but it was a very, very normal conversation. But you also want to just kind of sit back and listen to the pearls of wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, which I was, which I was able to do. So that was a very, very interesting conversation, a bucket list kind of item for me.
0: Yeah, I bet. I, and, I, and I know you make a good audience, man. You're, you're a great listener. So jumping in here, you know, I, I looked this word up uh, and tried to understand it for myself, but I was hoping from, a, from, from your perspective, you might be able to even make it more clear to me. Can you help me with the difference between re-gentrification and gentrification?
1: You know, it's fascinating now that there is a lot of this. Uh, it's probably the, the key buzzwords that's going on, in particular around some of the communities that I'm aware of here in LA. And I mean, there's a natural flow to things that over years um, people uh, have a tendency to, you know, the there's movement amongst uh, the ethnicities in the various communities. And with that movement, I mean, obviously, there's shifts. So I remember growing up in Seattle and being in a position where there's, um, you know, what we call the Central District. If you went through there now, that was predominantly African-American neighborhood that now is very mixed. Um, You look at areas throughout um, Los Angeles, in particular around the Crenshaw District, there's a lot of movement, um, both Latino and white coming into areas like Baldwin Hills. So I you know, to be honest with you, I don't really try to get caught up in the differences between the two as much as trying to. I've always figured I've always felt like a neighborhood that's inclusive is a good neighborhood. I don't ever want a neighborhood like Baldwin Hills or Crenshaw to lose its true identity, mm-hmm. and I think there there are a number of ways that you can you can do that and still be inclusive.
0: Okay, yeah, we're gonna we'll come back to that. I want to, you know, can I re-listen to a um, a really fantastic conversation that you had with Mike Milken uh, that was recorded in June of two thousand and twenty. And we were in the early, you know, scary stages of COVID. And of course, here we are, you know, 18 months or so later, vaccine available, and we're still dealing with the effects of the pandemic. Um, there are a couple of things from that conversation that I noted I wanted to bring up with you. First, you thought there would be an opportunity on the retail side as a result of COVID. You also said that we were clearly at a tipping point. So is that playing out as you had envisioned?
1: You know, on the retail side of it, it's it's, it's that's kind of been a puzzle that um, most of us who do business in that in that sector uh, are still kind of scratching our heads to figure out. What what you're seeing is that there's a core group of retailers that um, figure things out somewhat and are still are continuing to do well, but you also see that the whole internet Digital side of it is really what's driving the day. The Amazon um, um, effect is what we like to refer to it as. So I, I still think jury's still out as to what is actually going to happen to that retail experience. Um, our, I, I think it's safe to say that you know anything less than a high-level mall like a uh, South Coast Plaza or something like that out here in, in, in California is uh, going to have a difficult time surviving. Um, there'll be some um, experiences that are in quality um, shopping centers versus malls that I think will continue. Movie theaters, which are part of that whole experience, that's definitely a, a tough one. Um, people have to figure out a way or get comfortable with moving back and going back to the theaters. That's going to be tough. Restaurants are starting to and Brad, this is up your wheelhouse, but mm-hmm. restaurants are starting to, it feels like thaw out a bit. And people are getting more comfortable with going out. I think that will be fine eventually, um, if they can, re- those that can recover from the hole that they, they got put in um, over the period of time of COVID. So um, it's still a lot of work to be done. Um, it's, I think we're moving in the right direction. I hope that um, vaccination versus not finds a solution somewhere where people realize. You know, and again, I'm not here to push anybody as much as say we've gotten shots our entire life. This happens to be another one um, that for the for the betterment of all of us, your families, and everyone around you, it seems to make sense. I don't I don't believe there's a chip that they're putting inside of you or any of the cons- conspiracy theory there is that 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 are going around but uh we got to figure this out and we got to figure out a way that we can come together because that's the only way we're going to get a handle on
0: absolutely man so, you know, it, once again, uh, in your conversation with, with Mike Milken, uh, which, you know, I, I just found fascinating. I mean, I'm you know, he's such a smart guy. And, and to listen to the two of you uh, discuss things was great. You talked about your background, Ken, growing up in Seattle. And I, and I want to quote something that you said and then get your comment on the other side. You said, we just stayed in the central district, stayed in the neighborhoods that we were in and frankly just grew up that way. But in my day, going to school was very much a predominantly white type of environment. It was one of the things that you grow up understanding, how to deal with all people. But I always maintained my own identity. I mean, my family came out of Louisiana and they were very proud to be African-American and made sure I understood that. So, Ken, you're, you're a big guy in stature. Um, you played Division One college basketball at the University of Washington. I didn't know you growing up, but I would assume that you grew early. You're also very smart. Again, I'm sure that showed up early for you as well. So what did it entail for you to maintain your own identity and why was that important to you?
1: You know, um, I actually at times when I think about it, one of the schools I went to, uh, my high school was a Jesuit school. And as much as and as difficult as they were as teachers, the one thing that they did force us to is learn how to think. And I think part of that process and developing that that part of, you know, becoming a thorough thinker is, is what kind of allowed me to feel comfortable with being independent. Um, and obviously there are life experiences along the way that kind of pushed you in that direction too. And that, you know, my parents were always – uh, preaching that, you know, don't follow. And, I, I you know, I remember if there was something I came home and said, well, if they were doing it and the, you get the proverbial, well, if he was going to jump off the bridge, would you jump off the bridge? Well, the answer is no, of course. But, it you know, you never know how much those lessons uh, become ingrained in your head. And and for me, I just, you know, whether it's through sports or what have you, um, you know, I developed an approach that I I felt I I wanted to approach this with a high level of integrity, and I didn't really put people on pedestals, so, you know, I I respected authority, but I wasn't afraid to ask tough questions, and I wasn't afraid to say, no, I'm not going to do that, if in fact it was something that I felt was outside of my of what I felt. You know I needed to do to keep my reputation intact and maintain my integrity so I don't I never liked playing close to the edge on decisions that could potentially not only were risky but were decisions that frankly just didn't seem right uh, and and all those I had numerous opportunities to test that uh, my response to to those situations along the way and, it just became a whole lot easier, and I felt a whole lot better knowing that I had um, maintained the, the guardrails that I, I had placed around my own behavior.
0: And on your your business influence growing up in Seattle, I want to read something else that you said and, and get you to comment. You say, quote, people that were successful in the real estate business, those were all white entrepreneurs. And really, you found a parachute jump between that level of entrepreneur and the community and minority entrepreneurs while well, I grew up around business all my life and was part of it and family work there and we all had jobs that I didn't appreciate at the time. I get what it taught me in terms of the work ethic, but I'm not sure it would be the business that I choose today or the chores that I would choose today. So can you unpack that a bit, Ken? I mean, I understand the value of the lessons of hard work and having a job, but I think you're making a bigger statement here.
1: Yeah, I mean, growing up, Early on, you saw that you were always kind of the only one in the room, whether it was at times in the classroom or whether it was throughout the course of it. And real estate became um, really clear to me that it was a predominantly white male uh, driven type of industry. And, um, you know, I've always I grew up in a in in a black neighborhood. i The businesses that we had were all focused around that neighborhood. We were somewhat inclusive in our location. had a number of customers that were coming out of, you know, people like whose last name were Boeing and other, you know, the recognizable names that were kind of part of the Seattle makeup. But real estate in particular, you know, the guy who really got me enthused about it was um, actually an african-american by the name of gerald frank gerald frank was uh is, was related in some way to quincy jones and his whole family that had, had a group of folks up in seattle and but gerald was very much he owned a lot of properties in the hood and what i did with him i mean he basically told me uh, i told him i want to learn real estate um, it was early on for me he said Meet me here at seven o'clock on a Saturday. If you're here at 701, I'm gone. And I literally just started riding around with him. Now, I probably more learned as much what not to do from Daryl um, as what to do, but he lit the fire for me. And then I've always been, I don't want to say uncomfortable, but unwilling to accept the fact that when you look across the room um, and you don't see, um, us, you don't see people who look like us and African Americans and minorities across the room. I'm not one to sit back silently and just let it go. So I kind of took took it on as I don't call I don't want to call it a crusade, but my own mission that whenever I could say something or if I, when I got to a point where I could effectuate change, that that's what I was going to do and try to make sure that, that room was more reflective of an inclusive type of environment versus one that's not and you know you along the way you remember all of the challenges that you had i mean i remember the challenge early on just literally in high school when we were trying to form our bsu and the, the priest told us we were there to integrate not segregate and you remember the challenges along the real estate side where it was clear that they weren't ready for what I was trying to suggest. Or, you know, I look at Starbucks and I I see a lot of the the changes that now look pretty interesting. I saw a commercial last night uh, that was very inclusive in terms of people of color. Whereas I remember seeing the early commercials and sitting in a room with Art Schultz and basically saying, how am I supposed to feel comfortable with this commercial when you don't have anything anybody that reflects me? Um, to the discussion I had with them when they were trying to, I asked them a tough question on oh, why don't you have anybody black on your board? Well, now they do. Melody Hobson is chairman of the board. Um, you know, you've got a, a, a couple others that are on there also. So um, this that's the approach that I've always taken. And when I made those comments to, to Michael, that's really what I was what I was suggesting is that you have to have the the, the guts. To speak up or step up when it's the appropriate time, Um, and you can be in a room that at times can be very intimidating to folks, but they're as intimidated by you as you may be of them. And when you bring up that subject, you know they also have a. If you're in the right room, they'll have a true sense of what's right and wrong.
0: Yeah, I would I would add to that, and again, just alluding back to you know how I opened the the segment with you, Ken, is is vision. You know, I mean, you—you know—to have the courage to speak up, absolutely. Because just seeing it and not saying anything doesn't change anything, right? But to see it and to say something, I think, and address it, it really says a lot about who you are. And I'm gonna—I'll use that to segue into a bit of your family background from Louisiana, because you come from some—you know—some your, you're pretty prominent uh, roots there. Um, your family, the Lombards, are prominent. You turn me on to a fantastic book called *The Creole Feast* that uh, your cousin Rudy Lombard co-authored in, um, I think it was 1973 or 1978 initially. And uh, he was a, um, just quite a character, man, as I've gotten to know a little bit about him. Civil rights activist, author, as I mentioned. Um, the, the Times-Picayune, uh, New Orleans Times-Picayune stated when, uh, when he passed away, quote, he was a freedom rider, he was a thought leader, he expertly gave credit where credit was due, who ignored African American chefs who made New Orleans cuisine as storied and as celebrated as it is today? Uh, Leah Chase wrote a forward in an updated version of the book. And um, Tony Morrison edited the original, which I which I found fascinating. Um, also, his brother, your other first cousin, Edwin, is a state Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals judge and former Congress of Racial Equality member, a civil rights organization that was formed in 1942 core that helped steer the civil rights movement. So, you know, Ken, coming from that kind of background, you know, when you talk about your folks being very proud, you know, about being African-American, what what can you share about your Louisiana roots, which run deep in and are strong?
1: Yeah. You know, I think the, uh, the main thing that came out of that, and if you talk to folks uh, who really knew Rudy back in the day, the one thing that he had was no fear. And um, I think that probably something that is in the in the DNA where, you know, there's a lot about Rudy's history and what he did, including there's a landmark case, Lombard versus the state of Louisiana, which Rudy led and helped organize the early um, sit-ins at the restaurants to try to break that, that um, segregation barrier. And that, that case is one that he was, was part of, and the point for, and just showed no fear about his whole approach on how he was going about uh, fighting things that were were wrong. And and I think that there's a sense of what's right and wrong that becomes very passionate. And it's back to that unwillingness to accept the status quo. If you, if you look at it and feel like you can clearly see that it's just, it's not the way that people should be treated. And so that was, you know, There was a very strong sense of that that we grew up with and also a pride, you know, everybody grows. I remember as a kid signing my name, I'd signed Ken and then L. And my dad saw that and said, what are you doing? And I said, well, that's my name. He says, no, your name is Ken Lombard. If you're gonna abbreviate, abbreviate the K and write the Lombard out. So there's always a, a very, High, yeah, high level of pride about um, our family and the name. So that's, uh, that, you know, I, I grew up around that.
0: What, um, so how did the family end up in Seattle, Ken? What, what prompted that move?
1: Well, my mother's from New Orleans too. So um, And her family moved in the 40s. My dad had a group of his, um, his, his uncle, in fact, that had moved um, to Seattle in the late 30s. And so if you remember Seattle in those days, there, it was a, a stop. There's a number of military bases. And so folks who were drafted and, and headed off, heading off to the war, that was you have one of those as your as your stop. And that's how they became familiar with Seattle. And so my dad ended up meeting my mom actually in in Seattle and they um, you know, he moved to seattle and in, in in the early to mid 40s that's how we got there
0: Got it. and believe
1: me they didn't catch airplanes they were on the train <laughs> there's nobody from louisiana was comfortable getting on an airplane
0: wow wow um So, Ken, just going back for a moment to your conversation uh, with Mike Milken, I want to refer to something you said about attending a conference you were invited to that Mike uh, was hosting and talk a little bit about um, how it shaped your vision uh, going forward. Your words, you said, Mike, you invited probably a dozen entrepreneurs and we had an opportunity to sit and pitch our projects or deals to you. You would always give us feedback. You didn't necessarily always say yes, But that's the first time I felt like, okay, there's an opportunity. There is a pathway to be able to gain access. You don't have to limit your ideas and the size of your ideas. So was that purely about access to capital, Ken, or was it more than that?
1: Look, I think it was it was actually more than that. But the lead uh, lead thought on everyone's mind was, how do I get access to capital? But, you know, Mike gave us an opportunity to come in and rub shoulders with a number of the top um, financial folks in the country, in the world. And being, just being in the same room it, um, was was something that was an important step in the right direction for me. It was right when I had just moved to L.A., you know, I was still a very young man and this whole idea of of pulling together capital was something that everyone was trying to figure out. And, you know, if anything, you could see some of the smaller firms putting together maybe $5 million and $10 million and feel like you had really accomplished something. Here was an opportunity to really see uh, how it works. And as much as anything, have a guy that's willing and Michael to, to really assist in connecting you with the right folks. Now, he couldn't make your deal for you. You had to make your own deal. He couldn't bring whatever. You couldn't take a crazy idea and come in and pitch it. And then all of a sudden, because you're in the room, somebody's going to say, here's here's a $100 million. But, you began to understand where the relationships were that you needed, where you needed to be and what you needed to do to become successful. And some of the deals that came out of that, you know, um, you know, the virtually the uh, with Bert Lee and, and Peter Bino put together their, their baseball, uh, their football, the basketball deal that they did with the Denver Nuggets. That was kind of an offshoot of that. And, you know, and there, there, there are some big ones. So Beatrice, Uh, Deal that was done um, was also part of that, which was African American entrepreneur Reggie Lewis. Reggie Lewis was funded by 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 Michael Milken. So, I mean, he's always Michael's always not only been a friend, but I look up to him a lot because he's had the courage to to really um, go after this and and not be bashful about it and be inclusive of how. and who's involved in the conferences, which started off as like the Predators Ball, and now you know they have the the Milken Institute and they have their annual uh, conference. That again, it's just a, an assemblage of a lot of capital in the room. And there's always Mike goes out of his way to make sure that it's inclusive.
0: You know, Ken, there's there's a term that's floated around more. I I don't know why recently, but this this idea of imposter syndrome where people don't feel like they've earned the right to be where they are. I don't ever get that impression about you, but when you when you found yourself in that room um, amongst other people who were looking to do what you were looking to do and you saw a larger vision, did you feel that you belonged there at that time? Did you feel like you were in the right place?
1: Yeah, you know, I never, as I said, I don't really put people on pedestals and I, I appreciated being there. Now I didn't come in with a whole lot of ego, and, you know, I, I recognized where I was on the food chain in terms of my knowledge, my experience, and everything else. And I tried to make myself um, where it was. I'd make folks comfortable with sharing information with me. Uh, and, you know, I, I remember there are times when I'd, I'd see people coming in and having a high-level conversation, and all they want to do is talk. And at the end of it, I saw one guy say, look, you can. I'm here. You can spend your dime however you want. You can pick my brain, and I can give you some information or you can keep talking. And when time's up, I'm going to leave and you're not going to leave here with anything. And that really stuck with me. Um, so that you, know, you, you got to make sure you understand who you're sitting across from and really be in a position where you, you're you allowing that, your, the information flow to be such that you can walk out of there one, understanding what you want to accomplish, and two, walking out of there having learned something. And I always tried to make sure that that's the way I approached it. But I always felt comfortable um, being in that room. And fortunately, I was able to do it early enough that um, you know, I was able to build the confidence needed to, to be successful, no matter what the, the environment was or whoever was in the room.
0: Yeah, you know, kind of what you just outlined there, Ken, is is indicative. I think of how a lot of people see you. You know, you have a unique ability to understand things from all sides and find, you know, the the happy middle ground for, you know, in in some cases you're representing. I mean, I go back to, you know, and I'd, I'd be remiss at this point to not acknowledge that you twice offered opportunities to me. Um, And, you know, it it makes you such a valuable executive. It's not just that you are capable of operating, you know, at at a very high level, but you also look to be inclusive and you look to bring African-American, you know, uh, businessmen, entrepreneurs along like you did, you know, myself and a couple of opportunities that uh, that you made available to me. And, you know, it's it's really meaningful. (laughs) You know, it's it's, you know, you being in that room with my milk and I look at you in that way. And, uh, you know, I'm just I'm really grateful that, uh, you know, that you thought of me in a couple of those situations. But, you know, what, what is what what is your thinking as it relates to how we help one another in that way? Can because you have, you know, made a name for yourself, obviously, the work that you did with magic got the most press. But, you know, you've helped lots of people, lots of businesses get started, lots of entrepreneurs get started that no, don't necessarily get as much press. But what is think thinking? Why is that commitment important to you?
1: Well, look, I, I think it really is. Um, I believe that we're better um, in an environment that's inclusive. Uh, I believe that we have a responsibility, those of us that have achieved a certain level of success to reach back and help people. And for me, it's, it's easy knowing that someone opened the doors for me, that there's, I really have an obligation. And it's not like it's something, it's just it's become a natural part of how I think about it. And, and I'm not afraid to make suggestions to others as to how they can become inclusive I mean, I'm having conversations, whether it was the CEO at, at Seritage or, or even others, that whether it's at their board level, whether it's an opportunity that another, a smaller firm needs to be um, included in. I mean, the key is, is that they trust my judgment. And, you know, if I need to allow that to leverage, provide leverage for others to be involved. So, you know, I, it's kind of how I look at things. If I look at it, a, a situation or a deal and I, I automatically try to figure out, you know, who's involved, who's not involved, who needs to be involved. And typically the who needs to be involved. Happen to be someone that looks like us, right? and is, is minority and African American. and I won't hesitate and if I have the leverage to to hold the deal up to make sure that something happens, I'll do it. Now that's my responsibility. The responsibility that others have are to come in, put the work in and make sure that you know you don't disappoint and don't don't just um, sit on your hands uh, thinking that there's you have a protector and whoever brought the deal to you. And, um, so, I mean, I, I hold folks accountable on that end too. And, um, but if we do that together, then I think it, it always works. But and look, Brad, you were easy. You, you know, you were, you were obviously a talented guy. Um, you knew your business. Uh, I never questioned the integrity. Um, and this was just something that if I could do anything to help, I was going to do it. And so, obviously as we became friends, each time I never had to worry about you you not putting in the full time and energy to um to be successful at it. So
0: I, I appreciate yep. that, Kim. but you know, I have to say, you know, each time and I, I felt like I became a better business person because I wanted to live up to uh what I thought that you saw in me, what you were willing to in- invest in me. So, you know, I I thank you for that. Ken, I recently had a conversation with a, a rising star chef out of New York, a guy named JJ Johnson. You may or may not be familiar with him, but uh he's he's steadily rising through the ranks and uh get making everybody's powerless. He's he's an African American chef, young, very talented guy. And we were we were we shared um, a frustration with the lack of well, first, seeing the high-profile, high-net-worth, wealthy music, sports, and entertainment icons backing well-established food brands, startups that aren't necessarily owned by African Americans, and frustrated by the inability to attract some of those high-profile folks to our startups. Um, despite you know this past year with all of the chatter around support black-owned this is still really a challenge for us. And I wanted to get your take here. Is this frustration misplaced? Is there an unconscious bias going on here or worse, a conscious bias, which is just bias? You know, are we more apt to do business with folks that don't look like us in some instances?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's that's really a great question. It's uh, it's been around for such a long period of time and the same frustration that you're you, you, you were discussing the other day and feeling is, has gone on, whether it's in the real estate side of the business or on the restaurant side. There just continues to be somewhat of a reluctance um, for us to come together on various projects, whether it's a restaurant business or even a real estate transaction. I don't know how to fix that. Uh, what I do know is that, you know, you see more like the LeBrons of the world, and uh, even like a Kevin Durant that's got a lot of di- different um, opportunities and businesses that they've invested in. But the people that they have around you, I mean, LeBron's folks are his his guys. So Maverick and, and others that, that drive the day for him that understand that poor part of it. But as they, they don't necessarily go deeper into the community to really understand you know and and have as much of a commitment to go out and seek out opportunities with african-american entrepreneurs i mean there's a commercial on tv now where you see a white guy and they're going through various comments along the way of this 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 ad and one of them is to say to invest in more black businesses with black entrepreneurs. I mean, that's something that we have to consciously decide we want to do. It doesn't mean that you're going to uh, lower the quality of your investment criteria. It just means that you're going to go out and do the do the, the outreach to try to figure out an opportunity. And I think that'll begin to move the needle a little, little bit if we see more of that. We just haven't seen that today.
2: Right.
1: But we have to. It has to change. And you have seen it in other segments of what's going on. Uh, you have impact investing. You have um, that people are beginning to push it. It just hasn't happened yet on the restaurant side. But that's what's really got to happen. I think it's got to happen even on the, the, the affordable side as we look at housing and what is the crisis that's going to, to impact all of us because if, if People can't afford to find a place to live. The next step is being homeless. And then you see the the current crisis across the country with with, homelessness and what's starting to happen, which segues into more mental issues. So we've got to, folks have got to begin to take uh, a very serious level of commitment. And I I bring that up only because it's that level of seriousness that I also place. The, what you had just stated, which was, you know, African-American restaurateurs, chefs, um, there's there's great business opportunities there. You just have to take time to go and, and make it part of how you're seeking opportunities um, and searching those opportunities out throughout the country.
0: Yeah, Ken, and, and on that note, um, you know, of course, last year with the with the so-called racial reckoning following George Floyd's murder, some of the top companies in the country got called out for not having any African-American members on their boards, namely Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon all had zero. I know you mentioned Starbucks, um, you know, does have someone now. Um, and of course, a lot of others that I haven't named Um you know, there was a lot of attention on this issue a year ago. So from your perspective, Ken, has that attention manifested into a change that you see in some of those boardrooms? You're
1: seeing it, but it's not happening fast
0: enough. I mean,
1: it's, you know, it, it, it peaked and then it's beginning to die down. And in particular, I'm pointing at the real estate industry that uh, for the first time in a long time made some very substantive comments and or actions they talked about taking action and certain things. And then all of a sudden as it began to die down, you're not seeing as much of it, um, taking place now. So it's how do you keep the attention and the push at the same level? Once it, once it did peak at the time of George Floyd and the other, um, incidents that were taking place across the country. Um, All we can do is everybody's got to take a responsibility who who are in a position to make something like that happen. Um, And if we don't do that, then it's going to get back to where it was before, where we're still sitting here saying, why aren't there more opportunities?
0: (laughs) Right. 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 So. I mean we're we're hopefully emerging from a confluence of challenges that have created major shifts in brick and mortar retail, how we live, where we live, where we work, how we work, how freely we move about, conversations around race, political upheaval, the climate. I mean, you name it, I mean we threw everything into the basket, you know, this year it's been unprecedented in in that respect. And I know this is a broad question Ken here, so you know, feel free to cherry pick, but from your perspective, what are some of the shifts that you see that will perhaps be permanent following the pandemic as we come out of this? Hopefully,
1: um, look. I, the obvious shifts are, you know, we're going to need to. We, we got to get past this um, vaccination challenge, um, and that's going to be something that I, I don't. I really don't see any kind of compromise as to whether folks get vaccinated or not. And I think that, you know, booster shots are going to be kind of part of our ongoing um, uh, process, as, as our life process as we move forward. On the business side, you know, I think that the days of us having to enter with masks and everything else are, is pretty much going to be part of our, our routine on the restaurant side as we talked about and obviously you get a chance to take it off once you're there but when you're on the airplanes now who knows how long that's going to go on i mean the whole process itself even i'd say one of the larger areas that's going to impact are um, the working environment for people what are people going to go back to the office or is this whole idea of working remotely uh, how much of a how significant is that going to be so Um, that's one of the key things, at least least for me. Um, There's a certain, there's an old school approach that says it's hard to recreate the camaraderie and team building when everyone's working remotely by Zoom calls, right? And so there's a push. You see some companies that are saying, we need you to come back to work. Uh, And then they figure out how they need to do it from a the glass between the cubes, distancing no con- no congregating in the kitchens type thing. you know but it's we got to figure it out and right now I don't think we have a solution. I think at best it's probably it's probably still more companies that are not back in the office yet than ones that are um, and that's that's just that lack of consistency is going to impact how business is done. Um, and you can't have one industry that just decides they're going to go at it. Um, And others that aren't. I mean, some of the industries that are going to be impacted, we talked a little bit about before. Is the movie theater business ever going to get back to where it was? Are the restaurants going to get back to where they are? Is the whole retail environment, which was negatively impacted even before COVID, is this the death blow? Um, is everything going to be online? These are all the things that I think that we're going to, we still, we don't have the answers to yet, and we will continue to try to be challenged by this, um, but we have to find a solution. There will be a solution that plays out. It's just, I'm not sure we can put our finger on exactly what it's going to be right now.
0: Right. And a lot of these challenges, I think, as you alluded to, you know, we're, we're already in the pipeline, just really got accelerated and exacerbated sure. by uh, by COVID. Ken, I want to turn to a, a local L.A. issue and maybe get your view from a broader context. The drama that unfolded around the proposed sale and development of the Baldwin Hills Crenshaw Plaza. For those listening who are not familiar, the plaza is roughly a 42 acre site. I might have that wrong about a few acres Uh, Located in South Los Angeles, and it is a cultural landmark. Full disclosure, I opened Post and Beam at Baldwin Hills uh, Crenshaw Plaza in 2012 with Ken's assistance in his role at the time as a partner with Quentin Primo and Capri, who we previously mentioned. They were the owners of the mall and the surrounding property. Again, Ken, thank you for that. Uh, And I was able to transfer ownership to uh, John Cleveland, who is uh, the proud operator of Post and Beam to this day. So uh, the legacy of of African-American business ownership continues. Uh, again, Ken, thank you uh, You know for making it happen. Sent, uh, the attempts to sell the property and the entitlements Capri secured became a lightning rod of controversy over the past few years as local community members watched closely a bidding process with competing parties vying for the right to purchase and develop the property. Lots of accusations were hurled around, and as I stated, there was plenty of drama. Ken, as someone whose involvement with this property goes back to 1992 when following the Rodney King L.A. riots, you in your role as president of Magic's and partner with Magic Johnson and his development company, you opened a theater on the grounds of the mall. How do you view the events of the past few years surrounding the mall? Yeah, you know,
1: this is probably the first time that I'm having a a, a conversation in this type of form about it. I, I um. It was one of the more disappointing um, sequence of events that have taken place. Um, I I firmly believe, and I'm an advocate for um, Black ownership, entrepreneurship, and in the case of like Baldwin Hills, when possible, um, figure out a way that there can be minority ownership. All of the other theories that are around it, which um, using gentrification as a as kind of a weapon to try to say it has to be black owned, that has never worked over the years. And, you know, as a result of that, it became very, very tense. It became, um, there were a lot of accusations, um, which were frankly, on the activist side, I'm not sure they even cared about how accurate their accusations were when it starts getting messy like that. Um, and when it becomes, if, if we can't have the deal, no one can have the deal. Um, when you think about the, the millions of dollars that have been invested by folks that live in that neighborhood, you know, that becomes a very self-serving approach that is not thinking about how that is going to negatively impact those folks' home values. And so I would have loved to have been able to say or figure out and support an African-American group that had come in with the appropriate capital and, and make the deal happen, but I was not willing to support a group that, Um, basically said, you're going to give this to us because of who we are and what we are, and no, we don't have the capital, or they put smoke and mirrors up to say they have X amount of capital. Well, it's a $200 million deal. And either you can see your way and understand and have the experience to be able to do that, or let's do this. Let's reset our goals. If we have X amount of capital, let's go start smaller, and let's build our way up to figure it out or figure out how you can position yourself to partner with whoever the group is that can come in and do the deal, but you can't partner with that group. And this is just me. Uh, you know, I don't think we're at a point where folks need to come in and lay their body across the, the transom and go to the offices and homes of people that want to, um, to, uh, acquire these properties. They're already these entrepreneurs who were buying it. Were Trump already saying they were going to be inclusive and they were gonna their feet were going to be held to the fire to do it? But you know, you're threatening their homes, you're threatening their kids, you're threatening their wives. I mean, it, it it got out of control. And look, I I I don't think if you have to fight, if you get into a battle, and this is clearly. The, the type of approach that is going to win it and it's going to be positive for everyone involved including the folks that live in that neighborhood then so be it this is a, a kind of battle it's not that kind of battle it's a battle of trying to accumulate the right amount of capital sit across from people who are getting into these deals, try to figure out how you can be part of it because that was clear Whoever was buying the project needed to make sure that they were inclusive and had some minority ownership in it. And they were all willing to do it. They didn't get past the screening process if they did. So I'm glad that it ended up closing. It It was a long time coming. I did whatever I could to try to advise folks on the ownership side as to... How to make that decision, um, and who was what was right and wrong with the various folks that were bidding on it, and I think it ended up in good hands. Now, at this point, it's the responsibility of the group that bought it to make sure that they live up to their their responsibilities, and there are checks there are checks and balances in place to make sure they do that. They still have to come and get approval for certain things. So, I think it ended up well. But it was way too painful. There were way too many accusations. It just, frankly, just simply got out of control. And, and that's—it's a real estate transaction. It's a private real estate transaction. And it—you know—you had Capri in the caper seat initially um, and running the project when I was involved. Somehow, whatever was going on with Capri, um, they lost that position. And at the end of it. You know, the the group that stepped up was 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 white, and um, they got some minority ownership in it, and they're going to be inclusive in terms they met with the community. I mean, the the Baldwin Hills community, Ladera View Park, they've met with all those folks who are very vested in making sure that something gets done, and you know, well, they're going to move it forward. So. Ended well, but it was just it,
0: it was an embarrassment, frankly. Yeah. Well, can you know, um, I mean, I, it kind of led to my to my next question, but you 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 pretty much already answered that. And, you know, you, you took me back to when we were contemplating Post and Beam back in 2011 or so. Um, you had me go around with your son, Jason, to various community boards, church groups, what have you, something that I had not thought to do prior, I never had the opportunity. I was always busy trying to raise capital, sign a lease, but you took all that off of my plate and encouraged me to go around with Jason to meet these folks face to face and hear what they wanted, you know, in terms of a place and, you know, on the, on the grounds of the mall. And it accomplished a number of things. One, it gave me a direct relationship to some people that I got to know even more so over the years because they came customers, but it showed the community that we were involved in listening to what they, you know, what their wants were. And they were very inclined to support us and they did. And, you know, your vision about that really guided us in the way that we needed at that time. And it just, it pained me to see what happened with the mall when knowing someone like you is in the orbit Use you. You know. You already have the roadmap for how to do this and that it that it devolved the way that it did. And, and, you know, it was just it was painful to watch. So, you know, my question was what what how should the community interact? Because obviously the, the concerns are legitimate in terms of not wanting to lose our cultural imprint, if you will. Uh, as the new group takes over, but is there a, is there a way that you see a, a community involvement that that works um, that, that that where there's a methodology that works for that involvement in terms of its interaction with the ownership? Yeah, look, look, I
1: think they have um, a good process in place. Um, hopefully, the disruptive factor in there. Um, that came in and really had more interest in being disruptive than it did trying to sit and share real ideas. Uh, hopefully, that has kind of died down somewhat. They still say they're going to try to figure out ways through litigation to get them all. Um, look, I lived through this, by the way, early on when I first moved to LA when Tom Bradley was mayor, and. Um, Alexander Hagen um, was the guy who was going to develop it. And a lot of the same types of conversations were taking place then. And the result was, you know, Hagen bought the mall. Um, the mayor supported him and they figured out ways to be inclusive. But I knew Hagen and I know the the current owner, David Schwartzman, And it's a different day, and he had to go through a different level of hurdles to get to this point. And I think just keep the process in place with Baldwin Hills Estates, the Empowerment Group, the Ladera Heights Group, all the block clubs, and continue with a very um, um, consistent level of communication uh, early on. And if they do that, and I know David will, and as long as the community continues to evolve, I think it'll end up in the in the right place. But don't don't sit back on your hands, not do anything, not communicate anything, um, and then all of a sudden you look up and you feel like something's something's not right the way it's it, it's ended up. I say that as a hypothetical only because I know the process in place, and as you mentioned, my son Jason is also very, very involved in that. And I know that that's how what David has signed up for with his ownership group and they'll continue to do
0: that. So, Ken, as we wind down here um, and you look at South Los Angeles of today, it looks much different than the South LA, you and Magic took a chance on in 92 when I would imagine enticing dollars to that part of town was next to impossible. I know you negotiated with gang members, you know, when it came to construction, it was was definitely a different landscape. It even looks different than it did in two thousand, you know, ten or nine. When when you and Quentin took on the mall, but you know now we've got the, the all of the the development, Englewood, SoFi Stadium, the Clippers, forthcoming arena, the train, Kaiser Permanente, lots of development, home and property values skyrocketing. Um, of course, that was thirty years ago when you were first push pushing that that ball uphill, tough sledding, as they say. But did you think it would take as long as it did? Uh, and does the current landscape look the way that you thought it would?
1: Um, you know, I look, I think it I knew it was going to take a while. Uh, there weren't enough of us that were um, gaining access to the capital to make it happen in, a, in, a, in any quicker fashion than it has. But this the. The size of the opportunities have been interesting. The Inglewood redevelopment, whether it was the form initially, the racetrack going away, SoFi, uh, Clipper Stadium, even the development, the retail developments along um, Century Boulevard, those have all been very interesting to me. And um, the same type of thing needs to happen in the Crenshaw Quarter. And I think that... Obviously not a stadium coming in, but we need to go from the 10 freeway down to Inglewood and be in a position where we see that that the significance of development opportunities. The projects are a little bit tougher because there's normally more than one owner and a lot of bureaucracy around it and governance. Um, as you look at you know projects along Slauson or even coming up along Stocker in the corridor, you're starting to see some of that. I've always felt like the Baldwin Hills project was kind of the, the, the anchor of that whole corridor, and so we need to see that one moving forward quickly, and I'll, the others will follow. Leimert Park um, is a hodgepodge of ownership, um, a little bit different, but also enough land mass that you can really do some interesting things and as much as anything it's a balance it's not just retail i think there's housing that needs to be involved in this um and, and as much as anything the one thing i agree with on the activist side is that we everyone has to make affordability uh, part of the equation and, and we cannot continue and i know inside of some of the larger organizations that i i'm privy to When it comes to low-income and affordable housing, some cities give um, an opportunity for a developer when he's building a a project to pay a fee to avoid the um, affordability um, side of it. That can no longer be the case. There has to be a clear mandate that whatever your project is, um, you have to have X percentage of it on the affordable side. Period. And you figure out a way to make your numbers work um, so that we can begin to address the problem. So as you look at even the Crenshaw Corridor, we should, I'm not going to say it still needs to have the balance, but there needs to be more of a commitment to affordability so that we can be part of the solution versus continuing to be part of the
0: problem. Got it. Ken, before I let you go, just um, if you can share where or what has your attention? These days, what are you what are you looking forward to? What's what's out there for you?
1: You know, if you you kind of, I've always had an opportunity, whether it was starting off with when Irvin and I put together Johnson Development, to be involved on the investment side in items that are going to make a difference. And uh, for me, right now, I'm getting pretty passionate around the affordability side, on the housing side, and call it social impact type of investing but as much as anything trying to see if you can move the needle on that affordability and come up with projects in an approach that that is going to make some sense and try to see see an improvement in the availability of options not just in southern california but throughout the country
0: fantastic well ken i want to thank you man you've you've been and continue to be a mentor to me. I want to thank you for the advice that you've given me over the years, the guidance that you've offered and, and mostly, man, for your generosity and just always making time and taking my call. <laughs> so thank you, man. I, I really appreciate the the relationship and the friendship.
1: Well, likewise, Brad. I mean, you're, you know, you and I are friends and we'll always be friends and I always do whatever I can uh, to help as I know you'll do when I pick up the phone and say, hey, Brad, I need your help on something. So, and I appreciate the invitation. So congrats on the success of your podcast. And <laughs> sounds like life in Florida is doing good things for you. So,
0: <laughs> It's good to be virtually connected still, man, if not physically. Yeah. So thanks again, Ken. Great to see you, man. Likewise. I am now here with Ambassador Shabazz and how we move. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? What are you hearing?
2: I don't know if it's the moon or what, but I'm just always so emotional these days. And the one thing I can say in a busy, busy whirlwind kind of schedule that I have, that this hour that we get to insert once a week, not only do you and I get to catch up, but the opportunity to kind of have an old home week, you know, uh a reunion with people that have traversed in our lives and been you know impactful especially after being so distant in the last Mm -hmm. year and a half and so listening to ken lombard and reflecting the way he entered and showed up and moved around in areas that a lot of people wouldn't touch in los angeles was really really important and for it to come in in the frame of a tall um quiet, you know, Black man just doing the work and actually manifesting and manifesting in a way that the cross-section of populations could um, commune, right? And real business. And, you know, I start thinking about people in history like Benjamin Banneker, you know, who is like, you know, a mathematician and surveyor. Mm -hmm. Many young people today don't even know how instrumental he was in the Washington, D.C. region that we know, that map, that we—that dial, that uh, the, the directions and where things are laid out are credit to um, Benjamin Banneker or John um, Baptiste DuSable, who was the founder of Chicago. You go someplace and you put down stakes. How do you choose it? How do you know it? You know, and Ken Lombard is one of those kind of social almanac cats. You know, he can go into a space and discern what needs to happen. What's the groove? What's the move? So pulling you from one side of town and saying, no, you'll fit. It'll work. We have to work it. We have to work the muscle. But you know it'll work. But it's having someone else really entrust that um, and back. It's really great. So just knowing him over these years and yeah, and he does take the call and he does write back you know, um, someone ever so busy. Um, I loved when he talked about his day needs to start with just that pause or that, you know, making that mind space. It seems like that has been a chord with many of your guests that is as busy as we all are. We have come to know at this point in our lives. It's not the speed, it's just the the continuity of preservation in order to do what we have to get done. Um, Makes me want to box, though. He said he was he was into boxing. I'm mean, have to give that some thought. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't suppose you would want to get hit either, though. But yeah. you know, you you bring up a couple of things that I that I wanted to touch on because you know you're you're, you're absolutely right. As we get to talk to some of the people um, that we've had as guests. Um, you know, our, our movement about has been severely limited. You know, the, the, this past year and a half, uh, going on almost a couple of years soon. Um, so to, the ability to reconnect with people whom we've known over the years yeah. and and haven't had a chance to see can't physically be in the same room with necessarily, yeah. but also to just kind of visit their life story and and appreciate. You know, someone like a Ken Lombard who straddles so many levels of um, necessary uh, departments in terms of being able to move processes along on a very large scale. And to your point, you don't necessarily you have to really stand back and appreciate the work that someone like that does and what that the footprint that that ultimately lays in the ground.
2: And what that means, you know, you know, when you think 30 years ago, he was a millennial like today's millennial. Right. So this is not someone we're talking about is in their 80s. You know, he's our peer. And 30 years ago, when he touched down and started to gift um, and explore and discover. And as he shared in your interview, um, continue to learn, sit around and, and absorb from others. So, um, and then now he bestows that to others, which is really fantastic. You know, in the last, um, oh, I don't know, a couple of weeks, there seems to be so many articles and notices I'm getting and outreaches I'm having about people trying to put down stakes. Something about this, this stillness that we've experienced um, people don't want to do it the old way anymore. So they're mm-hmm. finding their, you know, corn kernels and grain and things to swap to find land and find family. And I don't know. Have you heard of Freedom, Georgia? Yes. Yeah. So I find that fascinating. And, you know, it mm-hmm. wasn't like they were well, developers, but they had a mission and an intent. I would imagine like our four parents who dared to get a, you know, a plot of land or acres and they're daring to do it. And their interest is making sure that they can collectively do that. It's called a Freedom Georgia Initiative, right? And they're inviting all kinds of people to, you know, come and build um, your own community within this, with healing from racial trauma and economic empowerment. I mean, they're trying to do it. So I hope people reach out and support them, those who are skilled and have the capacity and development and, and preservation. Um, that they reach out and do that. And then I, on, the, on the fresher side, there's this young lady who has a little, uh, I mean, she's like a Gen Zer, and she has a little um, restaurant, I mean, a um, hospitality brand that she's beginning to create. Her last name is Beck. Her name is Kaylon Beck, and her hospitality brand is now called Beck and Call Hospitality. And she's in these tiny row houses in Houston that she's renovating and turning them into cultural experiences. Each one is designed and designated and their experiences that she'll curate. And she has a, I would suggest people go online to yourbeckandcall.co and see what it is that she needs because she's reaching out. Um, It doesn't seem like it's a lot, but it is a passion project. And she's one of those persons that I've come to witness. She intends to get it done, right? So it's not like an investment into something that's going to falter. It's really her heartbeat in motion. So when we talk about how we move and how we navigate, how do we nurture, how do we create those spaces for other people to come and enjoy the fellowship, So whether you're doing it like DuSable in in, um, Chicago or Ken Lombard in many locations, certainly a mark, a historic marker in Los Angeles, how about that Freedom Georgia? And I'm sure there are places all over, people all over, collectives all over. I'm working on something similar and I'm ecstatic every time I hear about it.
0: Well, I was just going to say that, you know, this is this is tailor made for you. This whole idea of creating these safe places, you know, call it affordable housing communities, but the the whole wellness element and, you know, just the kind of spiritual guidance that that you bring to everything that you touch. Someone smart is going to tap you on the shoulder and with a pile (laughs) of money and say, create this right here.
2: Well, they need to.
0: I agree. <laughs> <They need laughs> and to- I'll open a restaurant there. <laughs> well,
2: no, that's the, so that's the point. We're actually doing that kind of um, combination. The people that have bought homes already, we've changed their credit scores. And it, well, these are middle class folks. It's just that they had student loans and mm-hmm. all those things. But we have folks who are in various professions. So now these communities have people within them, a, you know, a walk away, a house away, you know, a street away that can service some of the things they need, get off of the guidance as a teacher or social worker. So it's been really exciting and they're proud to be part of these ribbon cuttings for people who never thought they could is a great joy.
0: I love it. Well, I'm looking forward to the growth of that uh, as things develop and uh, we close out this year at some point and open up 2022 on a deeper breath and uh, hopefully, you know, be able to wear the mask a little bit less
2: often, (laughs) Ambassador Shabazz and how we
0: move. Thank you. Thank you. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson, produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson, Theme music, Life Goes On by Bryce Vine. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a mean old lion media production.